Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. What is it that you think of when you hear the term psychological safety? If you start to turn your nose up at that term because you begin to think about coddling people and almost overparenting within an organization, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised by our interview today. Because psychological safety is a lot more than that. In fact, what it really is about is developing a culture that promotes innovation and growth. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, a leadership consulting and training organization that works with executive teams around the world. He's an Oxford-trained social scientist and sought-after international authority on organizational change. He's also the author of five books on leadership, including his newest release, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Here is Timothy Clark. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Josh. Good to be with you. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these questions? Sure. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? An experience. Well, I'd probably respond this way, Josh. I think my experience, the thread or the theme that runs through it is that it's been very diverse. And I've been blessed with that diversity of experience in terms of where I've lived, where I've worked, with whom I've worked, the different leaders that I've worked with. So it's that diversity. And what that's done, I think, for me is to help me have an aggressive, self-directed learning mindset so that I'm always trying to absorb the context. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to be a student. I don't think I I will ever arrive at a place of competency. So I think what that does, hopefully, is it instills a sense of humility and an eagerness to learn because you're in all these different contexts and situations and you realize how much you don't know. In fact, in, in one of my books, I define humility as the unresented acknowledgement that you don't know much and that you need other people's help. Mm. So that's what, that's what I'd say. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is a leader is a learner. A leader is an influencer and a leader is creating a portrait of the future. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? Am I playing offense? Am I being preemptive? Am I being proactive? Am I trying to take my contextual understanding and use it to 
gain an advantage rather than be in a reactive posture. I think that the difference between playing offense and playing defense is, is a fundamental distinction between leaders and managers and leaders and uh, everybody else. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? I'll go with an old classic, Josh. This is an old one that a lot of your listeners may have never heard of, but it's called The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. It's an oldie, but it's a classic, and it has withstood the test of time. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? To conduct a penetrating, unsparing personal inventory of where they are so that they can move their level of self-awareness and social perception to another level. The best leaders that I work with are distinguished by a higher level of self-awareness and social perception. Their powers of observation are just higher than the rest of the population. What does that take? That requires a lot of self-reflection and uh, self-assessment and personal inventory. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? Wow, I'd have to think about that one for a while. But I would say probably why, because why encompasses why not. Why is an analysis that forces you to go through the discipline of understanding both the pros and the cons of a particular decision or course of action. Well, Tim, we are here today to talk about your new book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Now, before we get into your book, I wanted to take a second to bring to the audience some of the great conversation we were having before we started recording. You did some research when you were studying at Oxford University, and I'd love for you to share some of what you learned while you were doing your research that will be helpful for leaders so they can bring transformation to their organizations during this time of global pandemic. Here's a thought on that, Josh. First of all, what what I learned in my research and have sent in the last many years in studying leadership and organizational change in culture is that culture is very stubborn to change. Now, think about all the other elements that we have in our organizations. We have structure, we have process systems, roles and responsibilities, policies and procedures technology, all of these things, those are all configurable parts. And they're actually pretty easy to change. The one thing that is not easy to change is culture. It's it's the most stubborn, it's the most difficult thing to change. But here's what we have also found, and this is an opportunity for your listeners, and that is that a crisis gives us a very unique opportunity to transform an organization because what it does is it liquefies the current culture. It liquefies the status quo. And that status quo is normally pretty calcified. It's pretty hard. And that's why changing it is so difficult. But right now, there's this maybe once in a lifetime opportunity to change your culture deliberately, intentionally, by design, because that that culture right now is is fluid. It has been liquefied. 
And that's why I'm saying to leaders right now, what are you going to do during this, this pandemic? Are you going to hibernate or are you going to accelerate? Because you have sitting in your lap, this incredible opportunity. There's an opportunity in the calamity. And that's what leaders need to understand. So they need to do a very careful analysis of their organizations, identify some priorities for transformation and start moving on those now because you'll never find an opportunity quite like this. And then one follow-up question to that. As you think about the ability to bring about change in an organization. You talked about how usually an organization is fairly calcified. Is there some point where the recalcification begins? And obviously there is some point, but is it easy to identify that point to make sure that the change that that needs to happen within an organization actually takes place during this more liquid time? It's difficult to identify that because what happens is we, so so right now that that culture, that status quo is, is more fluid, and it gives us the opportunity to change the prevailing norms, the, the prevailing patterns of the organization. And then those will settle in. Those will cure. They will ossify. They will calcify. They'll get hard again. That is a gradual process. The best way to gauge and monitor that process is to listen to the dialogue and the conversation of your team or your organization, you can tell when they're resisting or fighting or denying against what you're trying to do. And then you can tell when a tipping point comes and they start to accept it. They've moved out of denial. They've started to embrace it and then apply or incorporate that new status quo. So it's a gradual process. There's no event or milestone or marker that says we're crossing over now and we've, we've hit this point of consolidation. It's a more gradual process. Now, Tim, you are a prolific writer. We've mentioned that briefly in your bio. You've written multiple books. Most recently, you've written The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. And I'd like to get into that a little bit right now. Could you talk about those, those four stages and maybe also why this book was one that you wanted to focus on at this point in your career? Right. The reason that I did a deep dive into this area is because what we now know very clearly is that the biggest obstacle to inclusion and innovation in an organization is the culture. We, we, we absolutely know that. There's no argument about that. So the next question becomes, what is it about culture that, that holds us back from creating an inclusive environment? and holds us back from innovating the way that we are capable of doing. The answer to that question takes us to psychological safety. Psychological safety as a concept means that it's not expensive to be yourself, not socially, emotionally, politically, or economically. It's not expensive. So what I've done in this book is based on research over the last three years in particular is I've tried to lay bare the stages, the natural progression that happens in an organization with psychological safety. So the first stage is what we call inclusion safety. That means that you feel as an employee or a member of any social unit, you feel that you're part of the team. You've been accepted. You're included. 
you feel that you belong. That's stage one. That's the foundation. Then we build on that. Stage two is what we call learner safety. Learner safety means that you feel safe to engage in the learning process, to be able to ask questions, give and receive feedback, experiment, even make mistakes without fear that you'll be embarrassed or marginalized or punished in some way. That's stage two. Then we go to stage three. Now, keep in mind, this is a natural progression. So first we're being included. Second, we're gonna learn and grow. In the third stage, we call it contributor safety. Contributor safety means that I now feel free and able to contribute as a full-fledged member of the team to make a difference, use my talents and abilities and knowledge and experience. Now, I need some, I need some guidance and I need some encouragement and I, I need some autonomy to do that, but I want to make a difference. And that, again, meets the next natural stage of, of human need. I've learned things. Now I want to go use them and apply them. After contribution, we go to the fourth stage. This is the final stage. It's the culmination. We call it challenger safety. Challenger safety means that you feel free and able to challenge the status quo without retribution, without jeopardizing your personal standing or reputation. Now think about that for a minute. To challenge the status quo, it requires the very highest level of psychological safety. Why? Because you are now at the highest level of personal risk and vulnerability. You're, you're putting yourself out there. You're, you're taking a significant personal risk. At this stage, this is where we innovate. When we feel challenger safety, when we feel that we can challenge the status quo, essentially the organization has given us a license to innovate because innovation, if you think about it, by its very nature is disruptive of the status quo. So that's the natural progression from inclusion safety to learner safety to contributor safety and finally to challenger safety. Now, I want to get into each of these in a few minutes, but real quick, one of the things I like about the book is that it's organized in such a way that you have certain pull quotes that are key concepts or key questions. They're, they're highlighted in the book, kind of like uh, for those of you who may read blogs, you'll see these tweetable bytes that you can click on and, and automatically tweet out. It's, it's set up like that, and it's, it's really helpful to have those types of key concepts and key questions. It's essentially drawing out things that a lot of people would be underlining anyway. And sometimes you have multiple ones of these per page. It's very helpful to highlight really some of the important ideas that you're bringing across. And one of those is the idea of wanting to increase intellectual friction, but decrease social friction. And I'm hoping that you could talk for a second about how that relates to our understanding of psychological safety and our approach to psychological safety. Sure. This is the way that, that I frame it, Josh. And I think it's hopefully all of the listeners out there, hopefully you'll relate to this. This is the, this is the primary stewardship of a leader to simultaneously do these two things. Number one, increase intellectual friction. Well, what does that mean? That means that we are engaging in constructive dissent or creative abrasion. We're having hard hitting dialogue and debate. Now, why do we need that? We need that because this is how we solve problems. 
This is how we create new solutions. This is how we progress, we learn, develop, and, and innovate. So we need intellectual friction, and we need that to increase. We need a very high level of it. On the other hand, we need at the same time to reduce social friction. What does that mean? That means that the friction that often crops up between or among people as they're working together. And as you know, humans are pretty sensitive. So on the, on the end of every statement or opinion or point of view or question is a, is a person. And so we, we, we tend to, to be sensitive and we can reach impasse, we can lock horns, we can be uh, reduced to, to conflict, and then we're not making progress anymore. And so the dynamic, a healthy dynamic on a team is one in which that intellectual friction has gone way up and people feel safe to really engage in that. But at the same time, the social friction has gone way down. If, if you can facilitate, create, foster that kind of work environment, that's really the sign of a world-class leader. It seems like when there is that intellectual friction, it's really hard to keep that social friction down. Is there some, some way to really ensure that you can have those stimulating discussions without there being negative social implications? It's entirely possible, Josh, but it's not easy. Mm. And so the first thing the leader has to do is model the behavior. The modeling behavior that becomes critical to, to be able to do this is that the leader has to demonstrate a great deal of personal vulnerability himself or herself. So you've got to, you've got to start by showing people how to be vulnerable with your own opinions or comments or suggestions or questions. And at the same time, to be empathetic of others, to not allow personal attacks. So we want rigorous debate, but we cannot allow that debate to move into the personal realm because that's just, it's out of bounds. It's not fair. It's not good. And, and we're not exercising fair play and good faith when we do that. So the leader has to model that and also facilitate the process to keep it safe for everybody else. It's not an easy thing to do, but I definitely have observed and studied and worked with leaders that do it exceptionally well. It's something that leaders have to practice constantly, keep working on. Now, real quick for the listeners, I want to bring us back to these four types of safety, just running through them real quick. Inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, and challenger safety. Now, you mentioned that challenger safety is the highest level of personal risk. And so one of the things that I'm wondering based off of that is, does each stage require more personal risk, meaning that when it comes to inclusion safety, is that the least personal risk or is that not the best way to think about it? No, it is. It's actually a progression. It's cumulative. So for example, for inclusion safety, what do you have to do? There's only two things that you have to do. You have to be human and you have to be harmless. And what I say is that inclusion safety is actually a moral imperative. You have a moral responsibility. We do to provide inclusion safety to each other by virtue of the fact that we're human. And as I also say in the book, worth precedes worthiness. We're not talking about your worthiness here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about your worth as a human being. So therefore, I, I'm really obligated to invite you into my society. So 
with inclusion safety, back, back to your question, Josh, what do I have to do to earn that? I just have to be human. Okay, now if we go to learner safety, now my, my personal risk and exposure go a little bit higher because now I have to engage in the learning process. We all bring some inhibition and some anxiety to learning. So I have to put myself out there. So not only am, am I needing to be included and accepted, but now I'm gonna engage in the learning process. So my, my personal exposure is a little bit more. And then if we go to contributor safety, where I'm contributing, I'm trying to, I'm trying to participate in this value creation process with my team. Now my exposure and my vulnerability is a little bit more. So I need a little bit, I need a higher level of psychological safety. And finally, when I get to challenger safety, it's higher again because now I'm challenging the status quo. So yes, it is a progression. We move higher and then higher and then higher. When you think about these different stages, which one, as you think back to maybe organizations you've worked with, or as you think back to the research that you've done, the research that you've looked at, what is the stage that most businesses begin to get stuck at? Can you identify that or is it, is it too spread out across the board? No, it's it's a very clear pattern. Now the 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 levels will vary. For example, we have a, a a team survey that measures this. The levels will vary by by the by team or by organization. But the most difficult transition is from stage three contributor safety to stage four challenger safety. In fact, we did a study just uh, last week with 500 employees from a variety of organizations. And that crossover to challenger safety is the universal challenge across organizations. It's incredible. It's very difficult to get to challenger safety and to sustain that high level of psychological safety. Very, very difficult. Do you think that's because organizations aren't too crazy about having a bunch of people challenging within the organization? Yes. <laughs> I think I think you're right, Josh. Now and then we have to ask the question, why is that? Well, I think the number one reason is that leaders personally are insecure mm. and they struggle with ego management. And so it it actually becomes personal, doesn't it? Because ultimately we all work, we we have a, a boss. Most of us work on a team. And so it's really the boss's modeling behavior that creates the, the norms for that team. And, and this, is, this is a very difficult thing for many, many leaders to do to create that environment where they can accommodate the challenges. They can accommodate people pushing back. Uh, and, and they're fine with that emotionally. And intellectually, they can handle, they can tolerate, they even welcome that dissent and that challenge. Some do it marvelously well, but I will tell you that many leaders struggle with that. It's a big challenge. When you think about each of these stages, are there one or two explicit actions that you would recommend leaders take to promote each of these stages along the way? Wow, I, I have a bunch. So for all of your listeners out there, we have what's called the behavioral guide which is a companion to the book. And it's, it's a free download. And it's a very rich resource that lays out concrete behaviors that you can take 
in each of the four stages. So I'll give you an example of how concrete these are. And these are research-based. So for example, with inclusion safety, we begin with very simple things such as when you're talking to someone, physically turn and face them. Now that may sound a little odd to some of you, but this the sociometric research coming out of MIT, for example, shows us that if you turn and face someone, that communicates really your undivided attention. It communicates genuine interest and makes a huge difference in your ability to to communicate inclusion to that individual. So that's just one, that's one behavior for stage one, inclusion safety. Here's another one. So for learner safety, stage two. For learner safety, one of the, one of the, and this, again, these are simple behaviors, but one thing that leaders can do is to ask questions that begin with how, what, or why. These are what we call the workhorse questions. So if, for example, Josh, if I ask you a question that's a how question or a why question or a what question, what I've essentially done is I've transferred the critical thinking responsibility to you. I'm not doing it. If I ask you a simple yes, no question, that's not going to do it. But I ask, if I ask you a what or how or a why question, that will. So what that does is it engages you and it gives you an opportunity it enlists you in that learning process. And if I give you a sense of safety in that learning process, as you're trying to answer that question, chances are you'll engage more. So that's a, a very concrete behavior. So those are just a couple of examples and we could go on and on. Yeah. And we'll be sure to link up to that behavioral guide in the show notes. Now, Tim, we're going to bring this interview to a close in just a second. But before we do, is there anything that you think would be important to reiterate from our conversation today or maybe something that we haven't had a chance to bring up about the book or really about any leadership insight connected to the many things you've written across the years? Well, let's go back to really the fundamental framework of psychological safety. Psychological safety is a function of two things. Number one, respect. Number two, permission. It's the confluence. It's those two things coming together. So if all of you listeners out there, if you can think about just in your mind, think about how much respect do I consistently show to my people? And number two, how much permission do I consistently demonstrate or allow with my people? Those two things coming together provide that overall level of psychological safety. And so whoever you are, we always have the next step to take, right? There are areas where we can get better. And so I would encourage everyone to kind of do a, a, a self-diagnosis of where you are and then identify a couple of steps that you can take to progress and to increase the psychological safety that you're creating for those around you because you are the curator of the culture around you. You're, you're the one that sets the tone. You're the one that, that really creates the vibe. That's the, that's the job of a leader. Well, Tim, if people have enjoyed what they've heard from you today and want to learn more about psychological safety and want to learn more about you and the work that you do, where can people go to do that? Sure. Well, we'd invite you to visit us at our website, leaderfactor.com. Or reach out to me on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter at Timothy R. Clark and 
love to hear from you. All right, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Josh. If you want to have that behavioral guide that Tim was talking about at the end of the interview, then make sure to check that out in the show notes, which are in your podcast player or at lifeasleadership.com slash 084. You'll find a link to it there, and I hope you'll find that helpful in your leadership role. Now let's go ahead and get to our three key takeaways for the day. The first is simply what psychological safety means, and that is that it's not expensive to be yourself, whether that's socially, emotionally, politically, or economically. And I think when you are a leader, you notice that expense a lot less than if you are not in a leadership or a power role. So be aware that there are people around you who don't feel like they can be themselves necessarily without incurring expense to themselves, whether or not it's actually true. Hopefully, if you're leading well, you've already created an environment where people can reach all four of these stages of psychological safety. The second key takeaway is that the final stage, the challenger safety stage, is the highest level of psychological safety because it includes the highest level of personal risk. And this is the key. This is where innovation occurs because innovation is by nature a disruptor of the status quo. So think about those people that may be challenging you. Now, whether or not they're challenging you in the right way is a matter of discussion perhaps, but it's the people who are able to challenge that are the people who are going to challenge the status quo and thus bring innovation. And the final key takeaway actually kind of combines two different things that Tim said, but one of the final things he said is that you are the curator of the culture around you. So what does this mean? Well, one of the things he said is to seek to increase intellectual friction while decreasing emotional friction. That's increase intellectual friction while decreasing emotional friction. And the way he described intellectual friction is constructive dissent or creative abrasion. And I liked both of those terms a whole lot. I had not heard either of those before, especially the creative abrasion. But the higher those can be in your organization, the better. Assuming that you can keep that interpersonal friction down that comes when people work together. Remember, you can find links to connect with Tim and get that behavioral guide in the show notes in your podcast player or at lifeasleadership.com slash 084. And if you like the idea of innovation, if you like thinking about innovation, then I encourage you to come back for our first episode of next week because we have a CEO who spent nearly his entire career in an incredibly innovative market. And he's just written a book on the mindset to pursue the impossible. So if you've not yet subscribed to the show, I encourage you to go ahead and do that so you can get that episode as soon as it comes out. I hope to see you then. And until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, 
It's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading wealth.